Episode number 33, Breda Gericke. And welcome back to The Tunnel Block, a podcast about Canadian theatre designers, their history, and their craft. And I'm your host, Michael Cruz. And this week, I bring you a conversation from my trip to the Stratford Festival in May of this year. Berta Gericke spent most of her early professional life in Edmonton, but after years of work for uh, the likes of the Citadel and Cirque du Soleil, and illustrating archaeological finds, if you can believe it, she now lives and works in London, England. Berta and I met in a very noisy boardroom backstage at St. Radford's, and I'm sure you'll enjoy our conversation. Now, make sure to check out the show notes there. You will find photo and video material to support the conversation, including uh, a full-length video of the Cirque show that Breda designed for the Milan uh, Festival last year. Uh, and if you're able, please go to patreon.com to support the Tunnel Block podcast. We continue to record special events uh, like the Bellows tonight that I'm going to be recording and actually uh, sending out live so you guys... Uh, uh, may have seen that already. Uh, and I talk to senior designers. Uh, and, you know, if you chip in a couple bucks an episode, you ensure that I can continue to bring you the leaders in Canadian theatre design. If you have any comments about the show, please forward them to thetunnelblock at gmail.com or contact us through Facebook or Twitter. And I would love to hear from you. And now my conversation with designer Breta Gericke. Uh, Bretta Gericke is a resident designer, the resident designer at Catalyst Theatre, where she's been designing and conceiving world premieres for the past 20 years. She's a set, lighting, costume designer, triple threat, who creates for theatre, musical, circus, and opera. Uh, we'll be talking about all of that today on the title block. Uh, Bretta, welcome Thank to the you. title block. It's Thank you, Michael. to finally meet you and speak with you in person. Now... You were born in Winnipeg. I was. Tell me about what I is was the, not born in Winnipeg. That's Winnipeg. such a lie. I where was, were you born? I grew up in Winnipeg. Okay, where were you born? I then? was born in Vancouver. Oh, okay, that's great. And then you moved to Winnipeg probably early. Yes, I was, oh, I was five. I was five when we moved to Winnipeg. So I, I am a Winnipegger. You are. Oh, that's great. A true Winnipegger. And you lived. We're, in, we're talking uh, today in Stratford at the in the production office here. But and you you had you had a short stint in Kitchener just down the road three to five years where I grew up, which is awesome. I did. Uh, but how did you make it to, um, what, what was your first post-secondary uh, education training? What, what did you do first? Because it wasn't theater, was it? No, it wasn't. I was planning on being an architect. My dream was architecture. So I started um, in interior design. My father was a, a city planner and a true believer that um, uh, one should be creating buildings uh, inside and outside, not as monuments to themselves, but as real places to live and work and breathe and enjoy and uh, be productive. So my goal was I would um, uh, get an interior design degree and then get an architecture degree so I could couple those two things and be responsible. This was the, this was the big plan when I was, you know, 18. And um, I, so I took my undergrad in interior design, and we were, we were actually uh, all together, the undergrad architecture students and interior design students. It was a great influence and going uh, back and forth. And uh, that was a four-year program, excellent program. And I was a bit uncertain. I, I took a year off. I was a little bit uncertain 
um, because my friends that were in architecture were finding it, it was quite a long process to get to a place where they were designing things that they were. It's a massive apprenticeship, right? And, and, and fair enough, um, you're designing buildings and, and so on. Um, I, I, I craved something a bit more immediate. So I, I was uncertain. I took a year off and I went back to school and I took my master's in fine arts in theater design, which <laughs> talk about immediate. It's <laughs> definitely immediate. Um, on, on, on darker days, people call it disposable. I don't believe it's disposable. I do believe it change, changes, um, it changes people and how they live and breathe in the world. But, uh, that, that was, that was the uh, end result. That's great. How was the response? First of all, um, where did you go? Where did you get your MFA? At University of Alberta. And what was the response to having an interior design, architecture focused student apply for an MFA in theater? What, what do they think you're well, doing? I suppose I suppose I should have been wary because um, students who have uh, already have some sort of uh, theater design undergrad can can bypass this first qualifying year, right? So the so the, the the degree is either three years if you need a qualifying year or two years if you don't. I had to take three years, so, so clearly they didn't see my undergrad as um, as uh, pushing me to the top of the class. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was it was also an excellent program. I, I was very lucky. Both my programs are fantastic because it's it's conservatory, right? So it's practical. You're hands on and you're living it, and uh, that was it was excellent. Yeah. You're actually the, uh, I think, the third person I've interviewed uh, for the podcast who has a connection to the University of Alberta. Uh, Alan Stitchbury, who oh, went yes. there back in the 70s. Pat Flood, who I just interviewed yesterday, uh, she went to U of A for her undergrad as well. Uh, and uh, I've worked with innumerable people who have come out of the MFA program, both in directing and design. It seems like a, a hub uh, for design, at least in Canada, especially uh, uh uh, or not especially, but um, sorry, especially for design, I should say. Uh, so that's terrific. Now, uh, once you got into the program, uh, were you were you were certain this is what you were going to do, or did, was there a moment um, through that process or coming out of it that you thought, oh no, yeah, okay, this is what I should be doing? Uh, I, no, I was a bit uncertain. I had, for better or for worse, a woman who was a year ahead of me dropped out, mm-hmm. and I ended up getting all of her projects because they didn't have anybody else to give them to. Everybody else had sort of a full docket. And it was a qualifying year, so I, d- I wasn't really assigned. I was assigned paper projects. I wasn't assigned practical projects. So um, I ended up being thrown into the into the fire. And I think I was pretty terrible. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't understand lighting. I didn't understand... Um, the, the spirit of what I, you know, what I was bringing to the storytelling, I really didn't, I, you know, you've got to do it to, to, to get it. You can, you can read about it and watch it, but you really do have to do it. So I think um, early on, uh, I, I, again, it was a bit of a flail, uh, but what happened was I discovered that it was, um, it was sort of like this never-ending process of learning. You can't ever know. Uh, every project is... It's not, you know, you can do 10 Miss Julies or you can do 10 Julius Caesars. They're all going to be different because of the people involved in them. And, and that dynamic, that, that, the way that um, the project morphs based on the artists that are involved was so exciting. And it's a massive adrenaline rush. Like for me, it's just a, I'm a little bit of a junkie. I love it. I love it. <laughs> no, it's, you're not the first person to, 
to 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 glom onto that as a great way to, to stay alive <laughs> and be in theater, right? Yeah. Uh, now exiting, you went to uh, uh, exiting your, the MFA program. Your first, uh, you told me earlier that Catalyst Theater was the thing that made your career. Can you tell me about how was that right after you got out of uh, out of the MFA program? What what happened when you sort of started? In the wild world of, yeah, of design. Yeah, sure. Uh, um, uh, I was very lucky. I, I went to university with Jonathan Christensen, who is the artistic director at Catalyst Theatre. Um, he was in his MFA directing. Um, and I did a couple of shows with him while I was there. We worked really well together. And when he graduated, he and Joey Tremblay took over the artistic directorship of Catalyst Theatre. And my big fear... W- graduating was who who on earth is going to hire me <laughs> why would they hire me like, what what do i have to offer what do i bring and um john and joey were uh looking for a designer and they were looking they created a company so we had a company of actors a designer a technical director a production manager and we the i think there were 11 of us that first year and i think we all made 500 dollars a month and that's what we lived on, and we were, uh, it was an immersion, absolute immersion into the world of creating small theater. Uh, and that's where it started. That's terrific. Uh, the, so first of all, this is in the early 90s, right? This is 96. 96, okay, so the mid-90s. Yeah. First of all, to have a resident company that's not rep theater, established rep theater, and have a resident designer, a production manager, and a technical director, Yes. to me is just... Like the heavens open up and say, you hear angels singing. That's an incredible thing to do. I think that's Well, it was fantastic. incredible, but it was mad. I mean, we, we, we took over an abandoned warehouse where artists were squatting. Um, you know, the rain poured through every sure. possible bit of the ceiling it could. Heather, who was our, um, our producer at the time, our general manager at the time, had to keep moving her desk because it was getting rained on. We were all part of the... Renovation, which essentially meant we had to put in a toilet. We had to, do you know what I mean? Like it, the the whole place was, and we what we don't have is enough before photos because my God, that place was amazing. It was so uh, there was nothing. There was absolutely nothing there, and that's that. We just all had a common common dream. Yeah, that's terrific. That, that's a great way to start a theater as well. Uh, I mean, probably the older listeners are going, "Oh my God." I can't imagine working under those conditions Anything but honestly worse. when you're a young artist it seems like there's a certain romance about that especially when it when it gets better oh there was yeah, yeah there was a there was a truly a romance about it i was i was 25 and i think the oldest of us was probably mid 30s uh, and then the youngest were like 21 22 so it was uh, yeah it was a time that can't be replicated it was it was Incredible. That's great. And tell me about the shows. So what was your first show at Catalyst that you did? We, I think we did nine new world, world premieres the first year. I honestly think we did nine. And uh, it was insane. The first one we did was an adaptation of Electra. Um, and we, were, uh, we, were, we had rollers and paint, and in the middle of tech we're painting the walls to prepare for an audience to arrive <laughs> not the set just the walls of the actual space uh so it, it was that that was our very first show and it was um it was extremely ambitious and uh massive and we really hadn't figured out how yet we were going to make this 
thing happen, but it, it, it was, it was incredible. There was a, a great vibration in the room and, uh, I remember it extremely fondly as we do with things in the past, but yes. I do, I do remember it extremely fondly. Yeah, that's great. I, I, one of the things, um, uh, it must've been great to do the same, to do the same, work in the same space over and over again on different iterations or different shows so you could actually try to solve the problem differently or to solve that problem that you only figured out by the third show like that must have been a great training ground to do all that work in a short period of time in one space so you could figure your stuff out you know yeah absolutely i mean we we also you know we, we didn't have any equipment we had we beg borrowed and stole i did steal a couple of lights from Juve, sorry, <laughs> I returned them. <laughs> there was a lot of that going around because uh, we didn't have a lot to, to begin with. Uh, but we we were nothing if not brave. Every corner of that space was used for um, something new the next time we did a project. So, like, honestly, I, I think of the lot of us, I think maybe four of us survived into the next year because it was <laughs> very intense, yeah. four or five. Uh, intense uh, uh, learn the learning curve was so steep, yeah. uh, but magical. And I think that, well, I know that without that, and it's the the creative dialogue, right? The connection that you the connections you form with creative partners. Um, if you don't form them young, um, I think it's a very very challenging business because you you need that um, that spirit, that inspiration, that that um, connection that happens when the what if, what if, what if is so um, exciting. And even if it isn't groundbreaking, you feel like it is in the moment, right? right? And, and if people miss out on that, uh, you know, I certainly have lots of friends who have, have, um, have left the business. I think it's often because they're, they're sort of frustrated with the lack of passion and excitement in, the, in, those, in those connections that... Uh, haven't formed as they as they had hoped mm-hmm. uh, and what happened so you've been there since it, like that you're still with catalyst theater now i am I how am. has the work changed over that period of time like it must have it's must it's matured as everyone else has matured i guess right sure yeah. it's, it's changed dramatically we have um we we now almost exclusively do musicals right. jonathan is um is a brilliant composer and so he writes um and music first, in fact, I think music comes to him before uh, any text. Um, and, and there's a lot of uh, a lot of shared dialogue. A lot of uh, it's highly, highly collaborative. Um, it's uh, I, I think it still has that vibrancy, but we've all, you know, things have to become a bit more manageable. <laughs> you have to you have to find a way to sustain your. Um, yeah. Uh, sustain the, the 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 passion and the, the and the power for the work, and it doesn't happen if you're making five hundred dollars a month, and yeah. you know you have to move on to something else. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you no, just do. You do have to grow up. I, uh, that's not an uncommon thing. When I was leaving, when I was leaving the business, uh, just a short story. I, I was out in TMB, and I was working with uh, Duncan McIntosh, and I said, "Oh yeah, I'm thinking of uh, you know going into something else." And he said, "How old are you?" And I said, "Oh, I'm 33." He was like, "Ah, oh, yes, 33." That's the year. I said, what do you mean? He said, no, that's the your early 30s. You get to this point where you've got enough under your belt that you know what you're doing. Uh, and you start to have 
other dreams of <laughs> a bit more stability, maybe settling down, maybe having a place to live on an ongoing basis, and you know, let alone an children. Address. And, an address. An mailbox. address. A mailbox. Yeah, not that we use mailboxes much anymore for more than junk mail, but still, it's a place to um, call your own. Catalyst right? is still my address. It's it's it just is. Yeah. That's great. Now, what, what? So, how did you get out of Catalyst? What was your next big project? Did, uh, um, uh, did you stay in Edmonton? Yeah, I stayed in Edmonton. And, and what happened was, instead of doing nine projects a year, we started being a bit more reasonable and doing uh, fewer projects a year. And then now we do one, one a year, one every two years. Depends on it. Depends on the size of the project. Depends on um, the plan for the project because we part of our mandate is touring. We take the work um, all over. Well, the world in some cases. So um, so I have worked on various projects interspersed, obviously, with um, the work that I, that I do at Catalyst. So uh, my first big project, something that coincided with um, that me graduating was uh, Bob Baker came to the Citadel and he took over the Citadel. So, and his primary design collaborator, she went back to school. So there was this oh. void that happened. Uh, and there was also sort of an exodus from Edmonton at the time. A number of designers headed east. Right. So I ended up on people's list very early on because there weren't that many of us. Truth be told, it was all law of numbers. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. Uh, was that Leslie Frankish? Yeah. Yeah, yeah Leslie that. went back to school. She went. Uh, she became a landscape architect, That's right? right. Yeah, I remember that. That's right. I was at Shaw when that happened. And they were like, what? What's going on? Yeah. Oh, that's great for you. That's well, a great break. It was amazing. Uh, and he also wanted to work with someone local. And uh, so, you know, went in and showed him my stuff. And uh, we did uh, popcorn together. And uh, I, and then Tom Wood directed Midsummer Night's Dream. And I did both of those in their first year, which is now 18 years ago, which yeah. is extraordinary. I know. It's extraordinary. It blows my it? mind. Uh, well, that's a great break, too. Now, what was it like moving between Catalyst, where you had literally almost nothing and to go into the citadel which is an established house with lots of resources what was that what did you have to do to adjust well tom wood said something very wise to me uh he said you know just because you're coming to the big house doesn't mean the paint box is that much bigger and i didn't really understand at the time but what he meant is true which is if you you know at catalyst i uh, i was building a lot of it by myself like Eventually, I had help and so on, but I was building a lot of it by hand. And I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, I certainly wasn't building anything that people had to stand on. (laughs) But I was, you know, props and um, I was gluing costumes and um, I can't sew. So I was, you know, making the aesthetic sort of developed out of what we were capable of creating hands-on. Which, if you take that to an A-house, it's... it would be ridiculously expensive because it's it's all custom handmade stuff, and also I'm figuring it out as I go. Yeah. So it is a different it's a different um, process entirely. Mm-hmm. You come in uh, in, in an A house, you come in with with um, what is it going to look like, mm-hmm. and at Catalyst we didn't know what it was going to look like until it landed on stage because we kept you kept you keep testing and you keep trying and you're working with actors and trying to figure out movement and body shapes and uh oh maybe she swings her hips like that so maybe we'll do a giant skirt made out of you know rubber hose like it it, that's the kind of you know it's just a different a different process process versus uh 
being in an A house, which is a, which is fantastic as well, it has a different set of challenges and a different way um, to achieve the same goal, which is you're telling stories. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, that's terrific. Uh, did you do opera early, or was that something that you grew into after you worked at the Citadel? And I uh, agree. God, there's a lot of coincidences in this. I hadn't. I've never put this together. Mm-hmm. Um, Harry Frayner, who was the lighting designer for Edmonton Opera, moved to Calgary. Right. Okay. This all sounds. This all sounds like I have a job because people left Edmonton. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe true. Um, uh, anyway, Harry Frayner <laughs> left, and so there was a sort of a void there. And um, the production manager at the time asked me if I would uh, be interested in lighting an opera, and I said absolutely not. <laughs> I have no idea what I am doing. That's far too scary, and that's massive, and what are you talking about? And so, so fast. And um, he said, well, Harry's here doing a show. Why don't you follow him around for a few few days and see what happens? And I just tried by osmosis to learn from Harry Frayner, which is ridiculous because the man's a genius. And for me to do that is absurd. But I, I did follow him around and I did... Um, pay attention and uh, I still said no <laughs> I still said I'm not ready and then the following year I, um, I did it again and they said well, that's enough you're you know just do it and I did the first one I did was um, uh, Cav Pegs uh, Cavalleria Rusticana and Pagliacci they, it's two short operas they usually put together and we got to the end of the queuing session and I wasn't done and I right. said to the production manager so I'm not done. It's not fully cued. And he said, really? And I said, really? Like, what do, you know, what do we do? And he said, well, I guess it'll be faster next time. Yeah. He did. That's exactly what he said. And I, I didn't even know what to do with that. But he was right. Yeah. I was faster next time. Yeah. That's incredible. I always found the pace of opera. I didn't do a lot of opera. But uh, it's one of those things where you just... It's like you're you're just putting out cues. You're like working in a, in a factory, right? Nighttime, daytime, down wow. right, down left, the big crowd. Like you're just like pumping out those cues. You have to get it out. You have it's to get it fast. out. It's well, it's such a it's such a big, expensive building. Um, yeah. They can't afford. No one can afford to have any more tech time than is absolutely necessary. And so you. Better light it up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's the job. Exactly. That's what you sign up for. Uh, what, what's been, what have you done that's been your favorite uh, to work on so far? I, the opera, I, I feel like, takes a bit more risks lighting-wise, especially. Uh, sets tend to be large, obviously, but um, alternative sources, V5Ks, weird the machines. Uh, like, has, Have you been able to explore that? And, and what was your favorite show? Like, What was you... What, do you, what would you like to work on? Oh, I don't know. I um, I did a strangely. I, I did a Rigoletto in in Calgary, which is uh, at Calgary Opera with Glenislation, and I, I did the set and costumes for that. So I wasn't even lighting that. Um, Harry was lighting it. Thank goodness. And um, uh, and that was pretty magical because it was it, 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 the scale is so um, forgiving. Like you can absolutely go for it. I mean, my my favorite projects in the world are when people have to reel me in, you know, and and, that, and I'm fine, absolutely fine with that. Love it. Um, but you're just given such license because the stories are so epic and the belief that you, um, the ride that you go on, believing that, you know, either 
everyone dies or everyone gets married or everyone, I mean, it depends on the opera. <laughs> and the music is, I mean, it all starts with the music. The music is so massive um, that really you need to sort of live up, live up to that scale visually. Um, so I find that a, a great and magical challenge. I love that. Uh, terrific. Uh, just moving, uh, moving on a little bit. So when did you move out of it? What was your first show outside of Edmonton? Um, I'm not 100% sure what my first show outside of Edmonton was. I, I believe it was a Prairie Theatre Exchange, a, a Munch uh, children's show. Um, I had a little bit of experience of working outside of Edmonton because we were touring Catalyst work a lot. So that was excellent because you were in new venues, new people, new um, uh, you know, ways of working, um, and, which included you know, being in Edinburgh a number of years in a row at the Fringe, which is fantastic. Um, my first big show outside of Edmonton was probably Cannes Stage. It was probably Canadian Stage. Um, to what we did Twelfth Night, I did a lot of Shakespeare in the Park and uh, I worked with David Storch a lot at, uh, at Cannes Stage on various new works, did a lot of new work. New work is my... If you were to ask me what my passion is, it would be new work. Absolutely, new work, new opera, new plays, new musicals. That's a great. That's a great entryway. And I, I noticed in your resume or in your CV, you've got a separate section for um, design dramaturgy. Yeah. Which I found fascinating. I imagine these were workshops that you've done. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, the it's uh, having done this now. This is going to be episode number I don't know thirty something, and um, nobody ever has that section on their on their on their CV. And yesterday, uh, when I was speaking with, uh, Pat Flood, uh, we, after the interview, we spoke, spoke a lot about dramaturgy and being, and, and, and how there's not a lot of resources out there as a designer to learn how to dramaturge or, or how to participate in that process. Yeah. So tell me about, I mean, obviously you value it. Catalyst, it seems like that would be an excellent opportunity to learn from, from the beginning to the end. Uh, but how did you get involved and what do you consider that to be? Uh, I consider it to be about, uh, I believe that designers are visual storytellers. I believe that we are, are well, my goal, I shouldn't speak for all of us, my goal is to um, uh, support the telling of the story, but also to, to um, in whatever ways I can, help the clarity, help the, um, uh, help to push in a direction if it feels it needs to be pushed in a direction, help to uh, obviously provide context, um, help to, you, you're sending the audience on a journey. So how, there, there, are, there are many ways of doing that. Sometimes the story is best told through words. Sometimes it's best told through music. Sometimes it's best told through a, a visual moment. So how the, the, the greatest shows I can possibly hope to work on are the ones where the writer, the director, the cast, the designers are all, you know, I call it the best answer wins. Like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The ego at the door. It doesn't matter who has the idea, the moment of inspiration. But let's, you know, let's carve and shape this so that we are taking the audience on the ride that, that we want them to go on. Yeah. So... I mean, that's something I think that we developed uh, a, a catalyst really early on because there was such a, 
a visual uh, emphasis. Uh, John and Joey, um, writers and directors and composers, both of them, um, but they also really value the power of the visual story. So it's not to get in the way. It's not to be all, oh, you know, that was my idea and doesn't she look great in that dress? It's about, are you telling the story? So what happened over the years were what's our, um, directors or playwrights or combinations of directors and playwrights have asked me to read a play and, and tell them what I see, which is just a, you know, it's a very low stakes, fun way of, of um, just sharing visually what's popping off the page, mm-hmm. right? And then, um, and then the ones that are listed are actual workshops where designers in the room just well, sketching, um, uh, bringing visuals to help communicate um, what what you're seeing. Um, just make offers. It's just about making offers. Yeah. Offer, offer, offer. I mean, Jill Kiley, who I work with a lot, says. Um, one of the things she likes is I'm not afraid to let things go. I'm just, I have no fear about cutting things or letting things go. And she jokes, she says, oh, it's because there's always a million more. <laughs> there's always a million more offers, which I'm sure can get quite tedious. But I'm so happy to just make offers. So this is, you know, I'm, not, I'm not a honer, if that makes sense. I'm not the person in the room who is often can condensing the thought into a single I'm usually the person going we could do it this way if we did it this way this is what would happen what if we did it this way this is what would happen what if we put her up there and then if we did that then what the audience would think is we're seeing through the mirror you know that those kinds of things so that's I guess that's what I think of as visual dramaturgy that's terrific uh great now I think it's interesting that um I think the reason I haven't seen it on any other CV, not that I've seen hundreds of CVs, but um, people don't usually consider that a product of their work. Uh, you know, you, you, when you do a show, you can say, aha, and everyone can come and see it, and you can, you know, you can, fit, you can wrap it in a bow. Uh, whereas the kind of work you're talking about is just development. Um, mm-hmm. Now, development's important, but people don't, uh, I don't think people have given it the value that, and importance that I, you know, from what, from what I'm hearing from you, is is quite obvious. Like this is this is important work to do, and you should, uh, especially if you become a, have a reputation for it. It's something you should uh, celebrate and share with people, right? Yeah, I think yeah. so. I think there's a uh, there's a real rigor to what we do, a real rigor to what uh, a designer does, and and you know months sometimes years before you're even in a rehearsal hall mm-hmm. uh and to be able to you know like i th- i had never even really heard of the term visual dramaturg it was a, a a playwright who asked me to read a play and asked for my feedback and i said why <laughs> <laughs> of course i will yeah. uh, of course but i i don't have any power i don't have you know, so um, let, tell me what you're looking for. Mm-hmm. And she said, well, I think of you as a visual dramaturg, so just tell me what you see. Mm-hmm. Tell me what you see. Uh, and there's a great freedom in that because there's nothing, in that situation, there's nothing there's nothing going on stage. There is no plan. Mm-hmm. There's, there's just a, a person with a great imagination who has written a piece and wants to know 
what someone else sees when they read it. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And especially if you've got a vocabulary as a designer to be able to describe that in detail and come up with ideas, it seems exceedingly valuable. Uh, That's awesome. Um, Now, just to sort of get to the, uh, we've got about 20 minutes left total. So let's, uh, let's talk about uh, Cirque, which, which you did last year. Last year, yes. So tell me how, uh, um, tell me about the project, first of all, and how you got into that and, and what, the, what your experience was like working with Cirque. Sure. Cirque du Soleil. Cirque du Soleil. Uh, sure. The connection uh, was um, Krista Monson, who was a choreographer, um, creator, director, who choreographed Grease, the musical, at the Citadel Theatre, right. and I designed it. Mm-hmm. Eleven years later, I hadn't even spoken to her since. She's a fantastic woman. Mm-hmm. Eleven years later, I got a random email from her saying, hey, can you chat with me tomorrow? I'd love to talk to you. Mm-hmm. Sure, absolutely. So she uh, called me and um, started speaking French on the phone. <laughs> and I didn't know, but this was a little test. <laughs> <laughs> And I responded in French, and we spoke French for a couple minutes. And then she, um, she said, "There's this project. I, I, it may get the green light. It's looking good. Um, it's for the World's Fair in Milan, and I would love to know if you're interested." Now, I don't know who says no to being interested. In, I mean, I shouldn't say that. Oh, wow. I should be so brazenly brazen. But I, I it's just been a, it's been a dream. Of mine since, um, well, they're, they're 30, 31 years old now, and mm-hmm. so they, uh, it's always been a dream. So this, this was an extraordinary um, opportunity, and we, we did that indeed. We, um, we worked on the, on the World's Fair, and it um, opened in May in Milan and closed in uh, October, so it coincided with, the, obviously, the exhibition. It was an outdoor uh, venue, brand-new venue, so all the great challenges that come with a brand new venue that's being built to do something other than what we are bringing, right? right? It's being built for Beyonce and we're (laughs) bringing, (laughs) you know, (laughs) we're bringing, um, uh, the circus. So the, the technical team was out of this world. Basically we were building a theater within a theater Mm -hmm. outside and it's, it seated, uh, 10,000 people. So huge space. And, um, so talk about scale. Yeah. That's you know, and scale, and also just you know, talk about learning curve. You're you're very um, um, instantly aware of the 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 power of circus. I mean, the power is in the the majesty of the of the acrobats and the, the 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 things that they can do that no one else can do. Yeah. Very few people can do in yeah. the world. So I was you know constantly in a state of learning about that uh, and deferring because there's a lot of okay so I I can imagine what that can look like but the engineering of it obviously goes to the experts and there are many like it's a massive team of people uh, a very um, smart creative outrageous funny um, team of of people who who believe and part of the reason Cirque is what Cirque is, they believe that anything is possible, which is truly in line with everything I yeah. believe. <laughs> it's also a bit daunting, too, uh, at least to me. Uh, what was the show? What did the show look like? Well, what was your what was your uh, concepts, or was it uh, individual pieces? 
or did they, was there a massive was there an overall theme like they do themes? Yeah, stuff, right? yeah. There was a, a theme. We were um, Krista created, wrote, and directed um, the piece based on the theme of the World's Fair, which was feeding the planet to food for life. So it was responsibility, food creation of food, um, dissemination of food, and so um, we had. Uh, so it was a and obviously we're in Italy, so. It's a place of incredible food, <laughs> most wonderful food. Um, so the the big overall concept was um, uh, Nona's Kitchen. So it was a giant um, uh, shelf in the cupboard of Nona's Kitchen. So there was a, a big flower pot and, and sugar and coffee and you know, salt and all the things that you would find on that shelf in Nona's Kitchen. And, of course, each of those pieces then did something or was magical in some way. Uh, and then it was surrounded by what we called our, 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 our pasta wall, which was um, a, a giant, like hundreds of kilometers of uh, strips of um, like a white, it's, it's the casing that you use on rope. Like it was, it's a, right? So it was um, these strips, like thousands and thousands of strips that surrounded the, um, the shelf. And what it could do was it could be, projected on yeah. the projections were extraordinary uh, but it could also be jumped through and mm-hmm. walked through and climbed through and people could appear through it and yeah. back and forth and so on so it was it was great that's <laughs> it was great that's awesome and how was just i, I just a, one last question before we move on to stratford what was the kind of uh, what was your relationship with the engineers and the technical directors like how did you figure out those problems did you come up with an idea and then bring it to them and they Give you feedback, or was it oh, something yeah. working together, sort of in it a was, constant iteration? Yeah, it was sort of a uh, offer response kind of thing. You know, they, I would say, well, you know, what does it what does it need to do? And they'd say, well, honestly, you show us, show us, show us what you guys are thinking, mm-hmm. and then we'll um, we'll talk about how to make it happen, or how how it needs to change in order to make it happen, right. or um, you know how to how to guide the process. So they were very um, well. They're extremely skilled and they have a very uh, high level of um health and safety requirement obviously right so um that's you know you put it out there and then everybody shares their expertise uh, that's terrific. I imagine it was well received. It was. Yeah. It was. Well, Ten thousand seat venue. Was it? I mean, was it full? Was it? Did they sell? Like, uh, like. Uh, it, I mean, it, a great question. I know uh, the director went back for the last four or five performances, and you couldn't move. Uh, so that was fantastic. That's I think. Incredible. I think as the summer progressed, it probably got more and more, yeah. more and more. So it's. Yes, I don't know. It was. It was great. The night. Certainly, the nights that I saw it, it was. Everyone was over the moon. Yeah. Yeah. And just before we get to Stratford, you now live in in the UK in London. I do. And you moved there a couple of years ago. I did. And you're starting to work over there. How did you find your way into the community? Um, your partner is in the community already, right? He is, yeah. yeah. So partly through him, um, partly through, um, I, I now have an agent there, so she's uh, helping me make that happen. Uh, it's a slow transition, sure. obviously. I still have great collaborators here that I want to work with. Uh, so I, I still honestly work and pay taxes in Canada, which I will do for the rest of my life. And I'm, I'm in London when I, whenever I can be in London. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that's a bit of a juggling act. It is. It's, it's a very, I all of a sudden have a very expensive life. Right. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's a good thing I make so much money. Yeah. <laughs> you. Yeah. Right. All right. 
Uh, okay, so Stratford, when did you first come to Stratford? This is your third show here, right? This is my third show, yes. Yeah. Jill, uh, Kylie, and I did uh, Alice Through the Looking Glass, which was the first show. Then last year we did Diary of Anne Frank, and this year I'm doing As You Like It with her. And Alice Through the Looking Glass just closed in Edmonton. It went on the road. Oh, right. It was like, that's what a glorious surprise. It, we, we knew it was going to go to Ottawa, but it also went to uh, Charlottetown. Winnipeg and Edmonton. I'm so glad they're doing it now. It's it seems like such a uh, not a waste, but a wasted opportunity not to bring the stuff that's produced at such a high level across Canada and share it with everybody, right? Well, it's very exciting, and I, I mean, I hope it can happen again and again because yeah. it was uh, it was so people just people loved it. They had a ball. Okay, so tell me about your pra- the process here at Stratford and how you get into the work here. This is because of a large festival; you have to start way in advance, right? Get the get the yeah. machine rolling. Uh, how do you respond to change, and and how do you how do you change your working process to make sure that it it gets to the gets to the stage here? Well, uh, it's an incredibly collaborative collaborative um, building to work in, uh, buildings to work in. Um, I I'm sort of pleasantly surprised at how open and eager everyone is to I I sort of thought I'd be a bit daunted and scared and everyone's you know big and fancy and smart and I'm just you know like that whole and the thing that happens to me all the time and 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 in fact everyone is uh again highly highly skilled like the the artists that work here are out of this world and then once you get to know them a little bit in fact, your design shifts based on, uh, well, like last year, the, the, there was a, a massive paint requirement on the costumes, which I never would have done but for having met the woman, Lisa, who does um, their costume, costume painting. She's amazing. So my imagination was, well, anything's possible. I, I can... I will collaborate with her on this and see what she thinks. And but those early conversations are so valuable because they actually guide, um, right. help to guide you in the um, product. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and what about your own personal process? So, uh, it, it uh, you you I think what I'm getting is it changes every show. I think right? it changes every show. Yeah. I think you I think it shifts based on uh, certainly who the director is, and then. Um, you know, I'm early, early days working on a, a project for the National Arts Center, and I sent two weeks ago. I sent an email about some cockamamie idea I had in the middle of the night um, to the TD and the PM there, and that you know, and they sent me their responses. So, like that dialogue is there's not even a there's nothing on paper. It's it's just um, I I think mostly people are open to. They want, they want to bring what they know. They want to bring their talents to the table, I think. And I think if the more you can encourage that open dialogue, the better the, the product is. Cause, cause, because we don't, we, we know very little. And so if each of us knows a little bit about something and we can bring that all together, we can create something way more interesting than, than certainly than I can do by myself. So does that make sense? Absolutely, it totally does. Uh, and tell me about the show you're doing as you like it this year. Yeah, um, what's it? Uh, what what should we expect? Like you, uh, you must be. It's right now. It's uh, it's April the second, and yeah. the opening is May. 
right? Uh, June the 3rd. Oh, good Lord. It opens late here. Okay. June so you've got yes. still a couple months. So you're still early, yes. still building and, and making decisions. Yes. Yeah. It's, uh, it is set in Newfoundland in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine a better party than Newfoundland in the 80s? Absolutely. Right? Awesome. So it's a, we're, it's, a, it's a massive kitchen party. That's how we're thinking about it. Yeah. You know, it's a love story. There's a, four love stories. Mm-hmm. They're great fun, and there's a huge conflict between the court and the forest, like there was in the 80s in Newfoundland, massive conflict between the townies and the baymen. Mm-hmm. So there's like a link culturally to what was happening in Newfoundland at the time. Right. Also, Jill's from Newfoundland, and there's a bunch of Newfoundlanders in the cast, and uh, we're using traditional music. Um, Bob Hallett is creating it, is from Great Big Sea. Mm-hmm. So there's like a real um, it's joy around it. <laughs> That's all I can say. I, I literally just left a dance rehearsal where people are stomping and clapping and having the time of their lives up there. So the the idea is. And then again, it's sort of an undesigned design. When you when you arrive, you're you're given um, we're calling it a goodie bag, mm-hmm. and it's it's full of things that will uh, embrace you as an audience member to participate uh, in the in the telling of the story. That's great. In a good way, not in a scary. I don't want to go because I'm going to be singled out. Way it's right. not like that at all. Because no one wants to do that. No. That's terrific. That sounds great. Um, I want, we have another five or six minutes left. You also, you've illustrated a children's book. I did. Like, I did. What, what is it you don't do? You do everything that's, that's <laughs> A fantastic. lot. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Jonathan uh, and I collaborated on a children's book. It's called Maximilian's Mistake. Mm-hmm. And um, he he wrote the text and I uh, illustrated it. And it was really fun. <laughs> it was a, again, that's a completely different, um, uh, I don't know. It, it, same but different. You're you're trying to take take people on a journey, mm-hmm. right? They're reading they're reading the story and they're looking at the illustration and they they go somewhere as we all did as kids when we were reading yeah. books. That's, that's that's fantastic. And then on that note, you're not only you're telling stories uh, about the present, but you're also telling stories about the past. In that you illustrate for archaeological investigations. <laughs> Tell me about how you got into that uh, and how you have to change it, your brain to sort of... Sure. Yeah. It, uh, I was, uh, it, during my undergrad at U of M, I took an elective, which was ancient Greek art and arch- art and architecture. Sorry. Um, the um, professor of that dig, or of that class rather, um, runs digs in the summer, ran digs in the summer. And he was looking for students to come and work with him. And some of us, uh, he, he, he made an offer. You could, you could write a shorter essay mm-hmm. if it coincided with a work of art <laughs> that you created, um, or you could write a longer essay. And most people obviously chose to write a long essay. And then there were those of us, a handful of us, who were in interior design who went, forget that. We'll, we'll draw something and write the short version. Yeah. Uh, at any rate, I got I was very interested in um, in certainly going to Greece, and um, I was very interested in working on these digs. And he uh, hired me as a as an illustrator. So he taught me how to illustrate for a publication. And I mean, there's lots of things I love about it. Of course, the romance of it. It's such a an incredible. Um, it's all about possibility. 
you know, you have a, a theory and you're digging for something, but you don't know mm-hmm. what you're going to uncover. Um, but the thing that's surprising that I love about it is you can get it right. There's nothing in my world I can get right. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. But I can draw something and I can look at it and know if it's right because it's actually very technical. Right. It's measured and it's, it's extremely technical. So it, it feels like a, a kind of marriage of, of, um, of design and math. Not that I'm any good at math, but I am able to get something right, which is just deeply satisfying. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, what do you want to do... Uh, when I grow up. When you grow up. <laughs> uh, you, you were exhibited in Prague this year at the uh, World Design World Theatre Expo. What's it called? It's called the Quadrennial. The Quadrennial. Thank you. You exhibited this uh, this year at, at the Quadrennial in Prague, um, which is great. I'm glad Canada is sending stuff over there. This year it was... Uh, there were outhouses, right? Yeah, it was fantastic. It was that an was installation great. of outhouses created by Patrick Jewars, and yeah. he... Uh, he designed the uh, installation piece, and he had one of his works was was one of the outhouses. So each of us had an outhouse mm-hmm. that we um, uh, we we were uh, representing a show, and uh, Patrick was working with all of the teams or individuals to then design the inside of that outhouse so that it all made sense and it was an experience and and, and sounds like everyone loved it. So I, I think it was a huge success. Yeah, that's terrific. And and, and then finally, uh, April. Oh God, pronounce Visco. Visco. April Visco. I know April. Hi, April. Uh, April Visco uh, has put together uh, a costume exhibit that has toured to Moscow and Beijing. Yeah. Um, and you were part of that as well, and that's going to the U.S. What? Uh, uh, I think it's really important that Canadian design be represented internationally. I think that's a great idea. Um, can you describe the exhibit and, and your part in it and, uh, and what's, where it's going next? Um, well, we, we were basically called to submit um, works from a project or a variety of projects, and then it was curated, so uh, chosen by um, a gentleman in Moscow. And the... Uh, exhibit, I believe. Now I haven't seen it, but I, I believe is a um, uh, AB uh, work. Okay. Um, so that you're seeing, it, so that it's not actual pieces that have gone, but you're seeing the works of. of um, I'm sure I'll get this wrong, but I think there are maybe eight to ten of us, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it's really exciting. It, it's I've been having a lot of t- uh, conversations about identity, cultural identity, Canadian identity. You know, uh, living in London, it's uh, is uh, challenging identity-wise because we are. <laughs> some of them still consider us, you know, a colony, mm-hmm. and um, there is a little bit of condescension there, to be sure. But I think I think the responsibility is ours to um, clarify what it is to be Canadian in a in a in a really um, versus what it is not to be Canadian. Do you know? And um, I think that uh, April's. Uh, very wise to have um, have put this together because it helps um, uh, form um, an identity within a, a very small, you know, you, you would call costume design a bit of a niche field. It's not a million people who are costume designers, but if we can bring that to places all over the world and say, you know, this is what we're up to here, then, you know, you help to elevate the... the um, I don't know, it's status, I guess. I, I think it's just about wanting to wanting to 
be, be clear about what the fabric is here and what it is that makes you who you are. And um, that that is not greater or lesser. It is it. It is what you bring. What do you bring? And I'm, you know, I'm a prairie kid. I was born in Vancouver, but I am a prairie kid. So I bring, what I bring is guided by that, whether I like it or not. Big open sky, tons of space. Um, imagination. I mean, you, you know, if you're stuck inside in Winnipeg for eight months of the year, that's why there's so much great music comes out of there as well. Visual art, you know, you're, you're forced to make your own fun. And, uh, it's just identity. That's delightful. I think that we'll leave it at that. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. And good luck with, or break a leg. Good luck with, ooh, <laughs> Break a leg on your opening in June. Instagram. And that was designer Breda Garricky. By the end of the month, I will have another Bellows episode and hopefully a chat with designer Julie Fox. The music for this podcast is by Vern Good with voiceover by Gabriel Cropley. Please go to iTunes and give us a review. It'll help get the word out about this podcast and share the history of theater design in Canada. And you can follow us on Twitter at thetitleblockca and on facebook.com forward slash thetitleblockpodcast. You can send comments and requests by email to thetitleblock at gmail.com. And don't forget that if you like the show, please support us on Patreon. Feel free to share this with your friends, colleagues, students, and teachers, or listen to it while you sip basso buco during a run-through of your show at the Milan World Expo. Or you can settle for hot and sour soup in the backspace of Asmarai. I'm Michael Cruz, and I'll see you next time on The Title Block. Here's something I learned about the circus. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're in rehearsal and people say, oh, we're, okay, we're just going to do this one last time. Uh, I can't say that. You can't say that. Because if you say one last time, it means because somebody's Has hurt themselves. Hurt themselves. Oh, wow. <laughs> so it's a real, real superstition around one last time. That's great. You just say again. <laughs> we're going to do it again. again. Awesome. <laughs> it's great. I'll put that in at the end of the episode. <laughs> a little teaser at the end. That's great. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you.